0: Good morning. It is good to be with God's people this morning. I would love for you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. As you recall, we've been moving through the book of Daniel, and Daniel was living in difficult times. As you recall, Daniel was a captive. He was, he was somebody who had lived his his young life in Israel, and in, in Judah, uh, probably around Jerusalem, and the Babylonians came in, and they, they took him captive into the land of Babylon. Um, and then Daniel Daniel's lived through upheaval of different empires and kingdoms as the the Babylonian Empire collapsed and the Persians came in and and took power. So Daniel was living in a difficult, tumultuous time, and I, I think that probably many of us can identify with that. We we are living in difficult times. I, none of us have been taken into captivity recently, um, as far as I know. But I don't want to minimize the time the time that we're living in. We're living in times. Um, is if you've seen the statistics that suicides are, are very, very high, rapidly rate rising, and drug and alcohol abuse is, is very, very high in the time that we're living in. We're living in a time of division. We're living in a time where people, um, I don't know, if you're watching the news, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of um, you know, peace, love, and understanding and those sorts of things going on today. Um, we're living in a time um, in the church that I would say is difficult. There are issues that we're dealing with nationally and internationally that I think really do have, I think I'm accurate in saying this, really do have the potential to cause deep fissures and division among God's people, and I pray that that's not true. We're living in very difficult, confusing times, similar to Daniel in that sort of way. Yes, I know we're not living in a physical war, but as we understand from Scripture, we are living in a war. We are living in a war. Uh, the, the biblical view is that our, our battle is not with flesh and blood. Our battle is not with physical forces, but our battle is with spiritual forces that are that are very real and that are very present. And I think as we look at our text today, this is a good reminder for us the times that we're living in, that we are living in, in, a, in a war. There is a spiritual battle that is going on, and I want to talk about that um, this morning. So in today's text, we get a glimpse into an unseen realm. Daniel chapter 10 um, is what you might call is, is rather an unusual passage. Um, the, the, the spiritual realm of, of demons and of angels uh, is something that's taught in Scripture, but there are very few passages in the Old or New Testament that, that give us a, a very clear glimpse of what's going on. And Daniel 10 is probably the preeminent among them in terms of giving us an understanding of what's going on. So there are spiritual forces and persons at work behind the scenes that have real influence on global events and have real influence on our individual lives. And although for many of us, this may be confusing and terrifying, I, I believe that this text was, was meant to give insight and comfort, not to terrify us and confuse us, but to give us insight and comfort as we do battle with wicked spiritual forces. I want to pray for us, and then I'm going to read our text this morning. Please pray with me. Father, as, as we approach this text this morning, we, as we approach your word, I pray that your spirit will work in our hearts. I pray that where we need conviction, um, that your spirit will convict, where we need encouragement in the times that we live in, that your spirit will encourage. Father, um, sometimes are, we, are, we, we know in our minds, we know in our heads that there's more to the world than what we see, but sometimes, Father, we live as if this is not true. I know that I do. Father, I pray that this text will be a corrective to our worldview, that this text will will take, will correct what is often in my heart and in my mind a materialistic, naturalistic worldview, um, practically at least, and help us to understand the truth about the world that we live in. From, the, from your your perspective, the truth that you give us in your word. Father, guide us as we look at your text this morning. Work in our hearts. Father, we're so thankful for Christ. We're so thankful that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We're so thankful that we are more than conquerors through him. We're so thankful that our sins have been paid for, that he has risen from the dead, and that all evil has been defeated in the cross and in the resurrection. We look forward to his return in hope, and we pray in his name and through the Spirit. Amen. Okay, I'm going to read through the entire text of Daniel chapter 10, including the first verse of chapter 11. Um, and I'll stop here and there and give some commentary as we go. But I would love it if you had your Bibles open or if you, if you have it on your phone, to follow along with me. And I'll, I'll stop here and there and, and have some things to say. And then afterwards, I'll, I'll talk about the text in a big picture sort of a way. So Daniel chapter 10. Verse 1, in the third year of King Cyrus of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who is also called Belteshazzar. So real quick, if you're following along so you don't get confused in terms of chronology, chapters 1 through 6 is narrative um, and tell the stories about what what Daniel, his interactions with the kings of Babylon, of Nebuchadnezzar, um, and then later on with Daniel in the lion's den. And then 7 through 12 it's really almost more like we start over in terms of chronology. So we're, we're moving back through. So Daniel, the vision in Daniel chapters 10 through 12, which is one vision, is really about the same time period that we have Daniel in the lion's den. So the Persians have now taken power. Um, Cyrus has by this time, third year of King Cyrus, issued the decree that the, the Jews can go back and rebuild the temple. That's the context that we're, that we're living in here. Um, so moving on. This message was true. And concerned a great war, he, this Daniel, understood the message and gained insight by the vision. I I think that this is important also, that as we read this 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 vision and this message the next few weeks, um, this was not something that caused confusion in Daniel. That Daniel heard this vision, he was given this revelation, and he understood it. He was given insight. So I think that we should have that same perspective as we approach the text. Some of it's difficult to understand and difficult to follow, but it is followable, and it was meant to give us insight. Um, In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three whole weeks, for the first 21 days. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine came to my lips, nor did I anoint myself with oil until the end of those three weeks. This is a modified fast of sorts. As you remember, this is actually very similar to Daniel chapter 1. When Daniel did not eat the king's wine or eat the king's meat um, Daniel or the choice foods, same sort of thing. So on the 24th day, the first month, I was beside the great river, the Tigris, one of the rivers in Babylon. Again, a reminder that he's not in his home. And I looked up and I saw a man clothed in linen. Around his waist was a belt made of gold from Uphaz, and his body resembled yellow jasper, and his face had an appearance like lightning. His eyes were like blazing torches. His arms and feet had the gleam of polished bronze. His voice thundered forth like the voice of a large crowd. Now, if you were were Daniel, I would imagine that you would, similar to Daniel, be terrified. This is this terrifying vision he has of this, this man in front of him. Um, and who, who is this? And there, there are different views here, and I'll give you mine here in a second, but many people believe that this is a vision of the, the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, and the reason that they would say this, I, I, I see the argument here, is if you go to Revelation chapter 1 and you read the description of this being here, there's a lot of parallels in the descriptions of this being and in this, in this um, and in Christ in, Daniel, in uh, Revelation chapter 1. However, I, I don't think so. I, I would admit right off the bat, I could be wrong. I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is if you just follow through the text in Daniel, if you just follow through the text in Daniel, there, I don't see any indication to see that this um, being is different than the angel given the vision. We're we're given consistent pronouns. There's nobody new introduced as a new angel came on the scene. Later on, it said that two new angels came and there were three angels, not four. So I I read it as I just read through the text straightforwardly. My interpretation is this is the same angel as the one given his vision. And angels are often terrifying in scripture. Um, And you'll see that this angel needs to comfort Daniel as well. So I would admit I could be wrong, but I don't believe this is a vision of the incarnate Christ, I believe that this is the angel giving Daniel the vision. But moving on, only I, Daniel, saw the vision and the men who were with me did not see it. On the contrary, they were overcome with fright and ran away to hide. So they don't see the vision, but whether they're hearing it or whether there's just a general terror that goes with the vision, they react to the vision and they run away. It reminds you of Paul on the road to Damascus, if, if you remember that. So I was alone I alone was left to see this great vision. My strength drained from me and my vigor disappeared. I was without energy and I listened to his voice. And as I did so, I fell into a trance-like sleep and my face to the ground. Then a hand touched me and set me on my hands and knees. And he said to me, Daniel, you are of great value. Understand the words that I am about to speak to you. So stand up for now. I have been sent to you. When he said this to me, I stood up shaking. Then he said to me, don't be afraid, Daniel. If you look at sightings of and visions of angels throughout the scripture, that's almost always the first thing that they say. They don't look like the, the postcards and the, and the Christmas cards. They're, they're terrifying. People are scared when they see angels. So this is a very natural thing for an angel to say. Usually the first thing that they say, don't be afraid, Daniel. For from the first day you applied your mind to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. I have come in response to your words. However, the prince of the kingdom of Persia was opposing me for 21 days. As you recall, Daniel was praying for 21 days. And for 21 days, this angel says the prince of Persia was opposing him. But Michael, one of the leading princes, came to help me because I was left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to help you understand what will happen to your people in future days for the vision pertains to days to come. So I I think this raises some very obvious questions. Who are these people we're talking about? Who is this prince of Persia? Um, The vision that follows in in chapter 11 um, will track the movements of the the kingdoms, the physical kingdoms of Persia and Greece, of kings of the north and kings of the south. Um, But according to this text, there's more than meets the eye. There's more than just the physical kingdom of Persia and more than just the physical kingdom of Greece. There's more than just um, political forces that we can see. There are spiritual forces behind these political forces and behind these these national and international events. So the prince of Persia is opposed to Daniel, and he's working to prevent his receiving an answer to his prayer. Why? Why is is this prince of Persia so so, uh, interested in this? Um given the context of the book, this is conjecture, but I, I think it makes sense. My best the best conjecture is that the, this entity does not want the encouragement and knowledge contained in this revelation to be given to God's people. So he is opposing this the mission of this angel. Uh, another thing to, to address here, in case you haven't studied this before, but, but who is Michael? Who who's this, this fellow Michael? So Michael, this is the first time, if you if you're reading through the, the Bible, um this is the first time that Michael is mentioned in Scripture. And outside of this vision, he's mentioned a few times in chapters 10, 11, and 12, but outside of this vision, he's only mentioned two other times, once in Jude and once in Revelation. He's one of only two named angels in um, Scripture, the other being Gabriel, who's also been mentioned. And he's the only angel specified as an archangel. Archangel means a ruling angel. And we do see him in Revelation leading the army of angels to cast Satan out of heaven. So he is this powerful angel that leads hosts of angels, armies of angels, um, cast Satan out of heaven. Um, and I, I doubt he's the only archangel. There's, other, there's another passage that talks about archangels. So I doubt he's the only archangel, but he is one of the, the chief angels. And um, so anyway, in this text of Daniel, he seems to have authority over the nation of Israel. So there's a the prince of Persia. Later on, we'll come across the prince of Greece. Um, He's not given this title, but maybe you could call him the Prince of Israel in some sense. He's a spiritual force that's set to protect and defend God's people. Moving back into the text with me. While he was saying this to me, I was flat on the ground and unable to speak. Then the one who appeared to be a human being was touching my lips, and I opened my mouth and started to speak, saying to the one who was standing before me, "'Sir, due to the vision, anxiety has gripped me, and I have no strength.'" How, sir, am I able to speak with you? My strength is gone, and I am breathless. Then the one who appeared to be a human being touched me again and strengthened me. And he said to me, Don't be afraid, you who are highly valued. Peace be to you. Be strong, be really strong. And note he has repeated this idea of not only don't be afraid, but you are highly valued. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened, and I said, "'Sir, you may speak now, for you have given me strength.' He said, "'Do you know why I have come to you? Now I am about to return to engage in battle with the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece is coming. However, I will first tell you what is written in a dependable book. And there is no one who strengthens me against these princes except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood to strengthen him.' And to provide protection for him. So Daniel is given strength from this angel. This angel is about to go do battle again with the Prince of Persia, and later on the Prince of Greece will make an appearance. Um, he's giving him a revelation from a dependable book. I would I would see this seems to indicate that this is the recording of future history, that in this from God's perspective, what is coming is already written. Not from our perspective, from God's perspective, it's already certain, it's already known, and so Daniel is giving a revelation from what will happen. So if you're following along in your, your notes, I'm under the section called A Terrifying Vision, I'm going to move through this section fairly quickly. But in response, probably, to the troubling vision of Daniel 9, if you listened last week, Daniel 9 was really a terrifying vision, especially as a, as a Jewish person, as you're hearing this prophecy, this horn that's going to rise, and look at the beautiful land, and, and slaughter. God's people. Um, this is a terrifying vision. So Daniel spent three weeks in fasting and prayer um, before he finally receives this answer from God through these, this arrival of an angelic messenger. And surprisingly to me, um, this angelic mes- messenger was. was stopped. He, he, he was opposed. It took three weeks for God's answer to get to him. But Daniel sees this terrifying vision of a man that sapped him of his strength, his consciousness, and his ability to speak. But God's response, given through the angel, was delayed through the intervention and opposition of the prince of Persia, the prince of Persia, who is a hostile and powerful spiritual enemy of God's people. And although this vision is terrifying, as we read it, its message is comforting and encouraging although it's terrifying it's its message is comforting and encouraging daniel is greatly loved by god and god's people have powerful forces protecting them from their enemies now the bulk of the content of this vision is unveiled in the next 2 weeks Uh, But it concerns the future of Israel during a trying time as world powers will shift. So Daniel's lived through the time period where power shifted from Babylon to Persia. It's going to shift again from Persia to Greece and powerful and hostile enemies will rise against God's people. The message from Daniel is that what seems like chaos and confusion um, and in a time when God's people might be tempted to believe that God has abandoned them. They might be tempted to believe this thing. That's not the case. God's people are not alone. They have mighty angels and spiritual forces on their side. And as has been this message throughout the book of Daniel, that there's one thing to get from this sermon series is that God is sovereign and in control of human history. God is sovereign and in control of human history. I want to spend some time here talking, though, about this, this unseen realm and about angels and, and demons and, and spiritual warfare. Now, the way that we preach in, the, in this church is that we preach expository sermons. We move through books. And I imagine if we were just picking a sermon for the week... I don't know if Daniel 10 would ever get picked. It would be one of those sermons, that, this is kind of strange, it's kind of weird, we're not going to pick it. But there's a, there's a real strength to preaching this way, and I think this is one of them, is it forces us to grapple with truths that maybe we're uncomfortable with and things that we don't like to think about or things that might seem strange in our day and age for us to believe in. So there is an unseen realm, I think this is a clear teaching of Scripture, in which global events are influenced in some way by spiritual forces. How exactly? I don't know. But in some way, by spiritual forces. And this is not a peculiar teaching to Daniel. I'll I'll move us through scripture um, in a lot of different passages here. But Ephesians chapter 6, we'll return to this later. But verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I want you to note those those terms of of rulers and authorities because we'll see them again throughout, especially in Paul's epistles, and they consistently refer to spiritual forces. They consistently refer to, to spiritual powers and authorities. So among these very real spiritual beings, there are forces for both good and evil. There are forces for both good and evil. Among these spiritual forces, there are those who oppose God and those who oppose God's people, those who seek to hinder us in our Christian walks. And more on that, in a minute, there are also among these spiritual forces beings who aid and support and fight alongside of us. And although at first glance that the idea that we're introduced to in this passage might seem terrifying, I, again, I want you to hear this. I believe it was meant to be a comfort to Daniel and to his people. They are not alone, they have powerful allies fighting alongside them in an unseen war. If you think about Israel as this tiny little nation that has been taken into captivity and would, from all everybody's perspective except the scriptures, (laughs) they've been abandoned, forgotten about. They're not very significant. They're not very important. And the book of Daniel, what Daniel is, is hearing here and receiving here is that's not true. There are forces that are fighting for them and God is in control and he has good things for them. So scripture assumes and teaches the reality of personal spiritual forces for both good and evil. And these forces are, have, are powerful and they influence much of what's going on in the world around us. So it is right and wise for us to be aware of these spiritual realities. I think we ought to be aware of these realities. We ought not to ignore these truths. On the other hand, I think we do need to be cautious of teaching that goes beyond or contradicts scripture. We need to be cautious about teachings that go beyond. There's a lot of teaching about angels and demons and spiritual warfare and those sorts of things that doesn't have a basis in Scripture. I think we ought to be very cautious of that. So there's, there's some that directly contradict Scripture, and obviously we would reject that. And there's, there's some that goes beyond Scripture um, that Scripture doesn't teach. And those are things that we need to be, be cautious about. There's, 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 a, there's some danger in, in speculation that goes too far. That, that we get off, off base. There's a reason God revealed what he did, and there's a reason God didn't reveal some of the things he didn't reveal, if that makes sense. So, before I, I go into what the Bible actually teaches about angels, let me offer, offer some cautions and corrective, correctives based on what sometimes are taught. So, this text does indicate, and I believe this is true, that there are parallels between political forces and spiritual ones. There's, and I'll go into more of that in a, in a minute. And it even, perhaps... I wouldn't say clear-cut, but perhaps there's a connection between geographic regions and demonic entities, perhaps. But there is also this idea out there of, of these territorial demons that live in neighborhoods or they live in different places. And that what we need to do is we go from street to street, we go into our neighborhood and we cast out these demons and we, and we do these sorts of things need to exercise demons from neighborhoods. I I don't see any reason to see that as a biblical idea for, for a number of reasons. One, there's no example of this in scripture. As you read through the epistles, um, Paul wrote a lot of epistles. Peter wrote a couple, John wrote a few, Uh, You never see any instructions given on casting demons out from your neighborhood or casting demons out from the street or that sort of a thing. Um, There are are spiritual gifts that are listed in Scripture. Exorcism is never listed as a spiritual gift. You, You see exorcisms and demonic possession in the Gospels. You see it in the book of Acts. There's one instance, perhaps, in the Old Testament. I actually don't think it is a a demonic possession, but it could be in terms of Saul. But what we see is we see, and I I think there's something to be said here, is there's a a lot of uh, demonic activity around the incarnation. And I think there's a correspondence there. I think there's a correspondence between Jesus Um, becoming man, living among us, and demonic opposition to his ministry. And that's why I think you see such an explosion of demonic activity in the Gospels and then following that in the book of Acts. Now, that's not to say that demonic um, possession can't happen today. That's not to say that there isn't demonic activity. I I think there probably, I think there is, I think think there's anything in scripture to indicate that there isn't, but I wouldn't expect us to see the same level. I hope you're understanding my point, the same level of demonic possession and activity in the world that we live in today, as there was in the gospels. Does that make sense? That there was something specific and um, um, unique about that particular time period. So uh, moving on here, I don't see any, any reason to indicate that believers are given the gift of exorcism. We're not given any instructions on exorcism. So do we have this power? Uh, I do believe that there's probably demonic possession today. Uh, I think there's demonic activity among us. And if I were to encounter it, I've never encountered somebody that I, I thought was demonically possessed. But if I were to encounter it, um, I would pray. And I think that's what I would encourage you to do. As we see in the book of Jude, uh, Michael encounters Satan and Michael uh, Michael, the the mightiest angel of God's angels, says, the Lord rebuke you. So I think we need to be careful in how we're dealing with demonic forces. If Michael's careful, then we ought to be careful. And so I would pray. And I think God has the power to cast out Satan and God can do it. And I would, I would, that's what, how I would encounter it. Um, the, so I also do think the lack of biblical revelation in this, in this topic is instructive too. That if God wanted us to know more than we do know about demonic forces and about demonic activity, he would have told us. So there, there is, we're supposed to know about it. We're supposed to be careful. We're supposed to be alert. We're supposed to be aware. There's truth that we should be cognizant of and, and respond to. But at the same time, there is a danger in speculating beyond what God chose to reveal to to us, but, but enough of what I don't want to say. Um, I think this, this te- passage also has a lot to say to us. This passage offers a corrective to a, what I would call a functionally materialistic worldview. When I'm, what I mean by that, and I, I'm talking about myself here, not about you, is that often when I think about the world and the prism through which I see the world, is I just see natural causes, natural forces, natural consequences. I'm not thinking about spiritual realities, often. And I think I often adopt the worldview that's around me in the way that I view the world. Um, it's part of my, my worldview glasses, if you will. So I often view the Bible through what I would call a post-enlightenment lens. I, and I don't want the Bible to be strange and weird. And so I try to interpret it in a way that's palatable to people. And I think this passage is a way of saying, nope, that's not the biblical worldview at all. So we live in an age and context where most people, even if they say they believe in God, um, have... A naturalistic worldview that there's natural forces, natural consequences, everything is what you can see. But that is not the worldview of the Bible. So let's say a few things about these spiritual forces from what Scripture teaches us. And I'm going to read a lot of Scripture here. You can follow along with me if you want. You probably won't be able to keep up. But if you see in your notes, there is a section where I, I, it says for further study, and I list a lot of scripture passages. I have a book recommendation in there. So if, if this is new to you and you're, wait, I don't know what to do with this, spend some time studying those scriptures and, and you can ask questions and all those sorts of things. But first of all, about these spiritual forces. So remember some of those titles that we saw in, in uh, Ephesians of rulers and authorities and dominions and Um, So uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, these forces were created by God, specifically in this passage by Christ. So he, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him And for him, and those those words there, you might not know this if you haven't studied it. Those words for thrones and dominions, rulers, authorities, are consistently used in the New Testament not to talk about Caesar or governors. They're talking about spiritual forces. That's that's so they were created by Christ and they have been subjected to him. Um, These forces appear to have associations with either uh, national or geographic divisions of some sort. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, and we'll return to Deuteronomy 32 in a minute. But um, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. And that's an interesting That's an interesting passage, according to the number of the sons of God. And sons of God is a term that's used several times in the Old Testament to refer to angelic beings. And I I see this correlating very much with Daniel chapter 10. You have a prince of Persia and a prince of Greece, and there seems to be some ordering of the nations according to these spiritual forces. So they were created by God. There is some association with either natural or geographic divisions. Thirdly, they have been subjected beneath the power of Christ. They have been subjected beneath the power of Christ. They have been defeated. 1 Peter 3.22, who, this is Christ, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Hebrews 2.14 and 15, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Christ, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Colossians 2, 13-15. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross and... He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So Christ has defeated these powers and authorities in a very real way by taking our sin, um, dying for our sin on the cross, being resurrected. They do not have power over us in the sense um, that, that they could. But there's an already and a not yet here. So there is an absolute defeat. Satan has been defeated. His, the powers and authorities, these demonic spirit, uh, spiritual forces have been defeated. But we are still in a spiritual war. We are still in a spiritual battle. I read part of it earlier. I'm going to read the whole of Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 here. And I, I want you to listen to this in the context of spiritual warfare and, and fighting against demonic forces. I, I think this is, this is instructive to us. So finally... Ephesians 6, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, So how do we do battle against these forces? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand firm. Therefore, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as for shoes of your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation which is the and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And as for me, also for me, that these words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So how do we do warfare with these spiritual forces? I think what we're seeing in Paul here is we do battle with these spiritual forces by living the Christian life as we ought to live it by living the Christian life as we ought to live it, taking the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, praying in the word of God, his prayer that the gospel goes forward. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, But these, these, these evil forces, they don't want to see the gospel go forth. They're opposed to that, but the, the, the gospel going forth, uh, praying in the spirit, reading the word of God, knowing the word of God, dwelling in the word of God, this is how we do battle with these spiritual forces. It's not by learning these magic formulas or using holy water or anything like that, that we do battle with these spiritual forces by living the Christian life as we've been called to live it. So what do, what do these forces want to do? I think this is also instructive of us and how we do battle. Um, one of the consistent teachings in both the Old and the New Testament is that there's a, there's a very strong connection between idolatry and false worship and these, these, these demonic forces. I, I used to understand that the biblical teaching, the biblical understanding was that these, these idols and these false gods, that they didn't exist, that they weren't really gods at all. But I don't think that's actually the, the, the full teaching of what Scripture says. That the full teaching of Scripture says is that... No, they actually... They do exist. They're just not gods. They're demonic forces. Let me, let me read you a few things. So, Deuteronomy 32, 16 through 18. Um, this is later on, uh, this is following what I read you earlier about the, the, the proportion of the sons of God that being um, divided that way. So, they, this is the nation of Israel, they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. To gods that they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God that gave you birth. So what, what Moses is saying here is not that no those gods don't exist, it's that they're worshiping demons, that there is a demonic presence behind these false gods. Um, Psalm one O six verses 35 to 37. But they, again, Israel, mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snail to them, snare to them, and they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. So again, this this child sacrifice that took place in the Old Testament to false gods, they were actually being sacrificed to something, to demons. There's demonic forces. There are powers behind these evil things beyond what you can see. Uh, moving into the New Testament, First Corinthians 10, verse 20. Uh, Paul says, talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to be a participant with demons. Um, Revelation. So moving into a prophecy about the future. Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, they did not repent of the works of their hands, nor did they give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. So again, what I want you to see by reading those passages is that the biblical teaching is not that these gods don't exist. So, so although they are not gods and in some sense they don't exist as being worshiped, but that there are real entities behind false worship that are receiving this worship. And, and unless we think that in our context, this isn't something that we, we struggle with or something that we need to worry about. That's just in parts of the world that still worship idols. Um, Paul in First Timothy calls greed idolatry. Greed, which is idolatry. So idolatry doesn't have to be worshiping something made of stone or of silver or of gold. It can be other things. I, I want to give some application here, but real quickly... I don't know whether this is something that is, that's troubling to you or confusing to you, but I, I think there's three key assurances I want to give you as we think about these things. First, Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So what, whatever this, this stirs up in you, that maybe it stirs up fear or worry about, oh, there's these demonic forces and these spiritual beings, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And I also want to read... Um, a little bit from Romans chapter 8. Um, th- this is one of my, this probably is my favorite passage of Scripture. But as we get to the end of it, I want you to note that he, he, he names these rulers and powers and thrones. So Romans chapter 8, "'What shall we say against these things? "'If God is for us, who can be against us? "'Indeed, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, "'how will he not also with him freely give us all things?' Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Christ is the one who died, and more than that, he was raised. Lost my spot, I'm sorry. Um, who is the one who condemns? Christ is the one who died, and more than that is also raised. Who is at the right hand of God, and who also is interceding for us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we encounter death all day long. We are encountered as sheep to be slaughtered. And this is what I want you to note. But no, in all these things, we have complete victory. Some translations, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, which is love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we do not have to fear these beings. Nothing can separate us. 1 John 4, 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So when we consider the angelic realm, we need to be vigilant. We do. We need to be alert. We need to be careful. These are not things to mess around with or things that are of no consequence, but we do not need to live in fear. We do not need to live in fear. Christ has put these powers to shame and has triumphed over them, and as believers and dwelt by the Spirit, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. But I do believe that we need to test these spirits. Um, I want to read one more passage to you first John four one through six. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, by this you know the spirit of God. every spirit that confesses Jesus as the Christ is coming in the flesh um, is from God. but every spirit that refuses to confess Jesus, that spirit is not from God. that is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is now already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have conquered them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world's perspective. And the world speaks to them, listens to them. We are from God. The person who knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deceit. There is, there is a role for us here to test the spirit. So how, how do we test these spirits? Well, one, and I think this is what John is talking about in 1 John, is test them against prior revelation, test them against Scripture. Does, does, does this um, contradict, or is this in line with what Scripture teaches? But as I think about the fact that um, today, in our context, we don't have people worshiping idols made of silver and gold, not literally, but they are worshiping things. They do have, there are things that are of ultimate value, and we can be tempted to participate in that. And if, and if, what, what these forces and these, these evil spiritual beings want to do is, is to draw us away from worshiping God, then we need to be careful of the things that we're giving ultimate value to. We need to be careful of the things that we're investing in. We need to be careful of the things that we hold as ultimate. So um, as we, it's, it's almost inevitable as we think about these things to move to, to politics, for instance. So let's think about politics for a minute. Um, in, in, in Daniel's day, you had the spirit... This force of Greece and this force of Persia. And if you know world history, you know that Persia conquered Greece, uh, invaded Greece, and then Greece conquered Persia. They battled against each other, but they were actually on the same side. The the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, they were on the same side. What were they after? They were after drawing people away from worshiping God. They were drawing people away, drawing God's people away from trusting in God. That's, that is their intention. And I think that we need to examine our own hearts and, and look at the things that we're passionate about, the, thing that we're, the things that we're spending our time in, the things that we are, are, are giving our hearts to, and ask, test the spirits in this way, ask, is this drawing me closer to Christ? Am I loving Christ more because of my investment in this thing, or less? A few years ago, I'm not offering to this to you as something that you need to do, um, but Maybe. A few years ago, I rid myself of social media. And the reason I did, the reason I rid myself of social media is I, I saw it. I, I realized, I understood it, that it was a force that drew me away from loving God's people. That as I was on social media, I looked at other people and I judged them based upon what they said and what they thought. And it was not a force that, that helped me to come into to, to church, to come into the, God, uh, the midst of God's people and love them more. It, it was a force that the other direction. And so I would ask you to examine your heart and your passions in that way as well. Are there things that are drawing you away from loving God's people that are causing division? Are there things that are distracting you from the gospel, that are distracting you from what we have been put here to do? Um, And we think about politics. I'm not saying that politics don't matter. I'm not saying that both sides are the same. Don't hear me wrong. But if God, uh, if Satan can use Persia and Greece, who outwardly are enemies and their allies, then I think Satan can use right wing politics or left wing politics for his own ends as well. And that this is something that we need to examine our own hearts. And I really do believe that. If you have any uh, beasts with me on that, I would say examine your hearts and then argue with me. That's fine. So, again, I want to return to the overarching theme of Daniel. God is sovereign over human history. I think that's the message of this passage. I think that's the message of the book of Daniel. He knows the end from the beginning. Nothing that is happening in the world today is out of His control. There are evil forces at work, just as there always have been, but not as they always will be, because they won't. They will be gone. There will be a day that will be gone, but they have been defeated. Their death and defeat is certain. This should have an impact on how we approach the issues of the day, whether it be coronavirus or the election or fill in the blank. Please pray with me as we go. Father, I lift up your people. They are your people. Father, we live in difficult times. We live in times where there is division. Um, Father, I fear for your church, um, that division and and rivalries and uh, different perspectives can tear us apart. Father, I pray that you will give us humility and I pray that you will help us to keep the main thing the main thing, that the gospel that we have, that that Jesus died for our sins and you rose him from the dead, um, that we have new life in him, and that we, we have a faith that is certain, a faith that is sure. Keep that the foundation for all that we say and do. Help us to listen to each other and be humble. Father, I pray that as we do battle, um, we need help because we are not strong enough to face these forces on our own. We know that. So Father, we, we claim Christ. We claim him because we are identified with him through what he has done for us, and we have placed our faith in him. And Father, thank you for giving us your spirit so that we do not have to fear these forces. Help us to be wise. Help us to be discerning. Help us to examine our own hearts. Help us to continue to do the things that God's people are called to do in any time, especially in this difficult time that we live in. We pray in your son's name, who died for our sin and whom you raised from the dead, and through the spirit who indwells your people. Amen.